0: So good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to tonight's lecture, the title of which is Philosophy and the Mind. My name is Brian McGeough, and I'm from the School of Philosophy in Dublin. When we say words like mind, we all have some sense of what we are referring to. Everybody in this room would know that it's something to do with that aspect of us that actually is engaged in thinking we might recognize it's that area that we refer to when we say I'm confused or I'm very worried and we have some sense of what it is we're talking about when we say mind I'm not too sure how much we understand about the mind for instance if someone were to ask you what's good for the mind or what's harmful to mind what does it harm how does it work Does it have parts? Is mind the ultimate authority? Or is mind subject to an authority? Can I have control over my mind? Or am I victim to its movements and its antics? So tonight's talk is really about the mind, about these questions in relation to philosophy. Philosophy simply means to love wisdom. The word philosophy literally means love of wisdom. So it's in the light of what the wise have said about the mind, we're speaking. Now, mind has fascinated people for centuries. I'm sure it's for thousands of years. And I think one of the main reasons is nothing affects us more. Nothing has affected you more today, during the course of this day, than... (coughs) the state or the content of your mind. Nothing has affected your life more than the actual mind. It's where all the obstacles are, all the limitations, why we behave in one way and not in another. It's where all our ideas are held that make us behave and act and think in a particular way. So it's a very influential aspect of us and really worthy of a good look as to what it's all about. If you take, for example, a simple event where one might experience fear going to meet somebody, that fear, the ignition switch for that fear, is ideas in the mind. That's where it comes from. Now, the same person going to meet the same person or the same event, without those ideas, would behave fearlessly. The only difference is the ideas that are operating in the mind at the time. So it's very useful to have a good look at how this piece of equipment works. The subtitle of the talk is Is Mind a Greatest Friend or Greatest Enemy? And certainly a mind that's full of fear, would be a good description of mind behaving like enemy. If you think of your enemy, somebody setting out to do you harm and lead you astray, and the mind can certainly do us harm, or at least the content of it can do us harm, and the content of it and the ideas in it can lead us astray. In fact, mind could lead you to your destruction, if you let it. Have you ever experienced sitting at home thinking about some incident that's occurred and before you know where you are you've worked yourself up into a little rage all by yourself sitting on the couch? So from a few very what might appear like innocent thoughts you've actually worked yourself up into quite a state. And this might happen frequently in a week or a month or a lifetime. And that's a good flavour of mind as enemy. We would be familiar with statements such as, he's his own worst enemy, or his thinking always gets him into trouble. He always thinks like that, and he always gets into trouble. And these are statements that give us some sense of appreciation that mind can be an aspect of us that, without our attention, can actually get us into difficulty. So a mind that's the enemy is restless, full of loves and hates and wants of all kinds, engaged in harmful activities, and possibly leading us astray. That's the enemy. Mind as friend, if you just think of true friend, a true friend would be someone who's your best interest at heart, who wouldn't lead you astray, who wouldn't advise you incorrectly. A mind that's your friend would be your servant. Be obedient to your instructions. So, if you told a mind that was your friend to stop worrying, it would stop immediately. Whereas you could experience walking around your house or your place of work full of worry, asking the mind to stop it, and it just persisting and continuing regardless. So, a mind as friend would be obedient would do as it's told. So we're going to look now at what the true purpose of mind is. Understanding how it works and what its purpose is would be very useful. If you think back to before you learned how to drive a car or use a computer, before you had any understanding of how to go about it, it was quite difficult. In fact, it was daunting. But the moment you understand something of the equipment, then it makes it much easier. So I'm going to read a piece from a teacher. His name is Ramana Maharshi. He's from the East, from India, a spiritual teacher. He lived 1800s, died 1950. And he's speaking about this aspect that we're addressing. He's speaking about the mind. Now in this... Extract He uses the word intellect and he's referring to mind. All living beings are aware of their surroundings and therefore intellect must be surmised in all of them. At the same time, there is a difference between the intellect of man and that of other animals because man not only sees the world as it is and acts accordingly, but he also seeks fulfillment of desires and is not satisfied with the existing state of affairs. In his attempt to fulfill his desires, he extends his vision far and wide and yet turns away dissatisfied. He now begins to think and reason. The desire for permanency of happiness and of peace bespeaks such permanency in his own nature Therefore, he seeks to find and regain his own nature. That is, his self. That found, all is found. Such inward seeking is the path to be gained by man's intellect. Now, what he's saying is that the true purpose of the mind, its actual reason for existing, is to discover the truth about yourself so the mind is a piece of equipment and its function is to make this inward journey and discover that which is true in myself that's its function, that's its purpose a secondary purpose is living an intelligent life So living intelligently and completely and fully in the world is second to its primary purpose, which is to discover the truth. Like, it's actually the only tools we have to discover the truth about myself. And participation in the world is like a playing field. And each of us has a slightly different playing field, depending on our circumstances and where we are, what we do, who we're married to, where we live what our particular work is so we each would have quite a different playing field but the playing field is what's presented to each of us to make this discovery so every single event that happens in life can be used to discover the truth about myself or it can be seen as a terrible imposition or interference in my life now the next question I would ask is, where does the mind come in the order of things? Where is the mind in relation to authority? It makes quite a difference. If the mind is the ultimate authority, the idea of it being a friend or enemy doesn't come into the equation. If mind is the ultimate authority, I then come underneath its instructions and its directions. So the idea of my being a friend or enemy of mine doesn't arise. So a singularly very important question is mine the boss? Now imagine working in a company all your life and finding out close to the end someone came along and told you that your father actually owned the company and unknown to you he left it to you but nobody told you and you'd spent all your life working under the directions and instructions of some junior staff. Then you look back and saw that all these instructions they gave you were the cause of all your misfortune. (laughs) All these instructions were the the basis of poor decision-making. You'd be quite angry. Now, it's a little bit like that. You've got to ask and inquire into who is the authority over the mind is it possible that I am the authority now it's easy to see that mind has some authority over the body if you look at a person you can see you can get some sense if they've got very sad thoughts in the mind you can see that they're looking a bit sad and gloomy if they look happy you could assume there's a few happy thoughts in the mind to some degree but beyond that is mind the ultimate authority or am I the boss now when we speak of the mind we express it in a way that suggests it's like a possession we say things like I have a mind you don't go around saying I am a mind you say things like I have something on my mind I'd like to speak to you about And you can know that there are things on your mind. You can say, my mind's confused. I better not make a decision today. My mind's all over the place. So we refer to it in language as if it were a possession, in the same way that you might say, I have a car. So our language suggests that we have some sense there is myself, who has a mind in exactly the same way as myself who has and owns a car now myself is positively distinct and separate from mind mind over here myself over here they're positively separate and distinct now from another source also eastern there's a particular piece here that describes this, which I'd like to read for you. The author of this, his name is Sat Prakashananda, and he's speaking about exactly what I've just been referring to. Mind, according to Vedanta, is something distinct from the physical body on the one hand and the spiritual self on the other. It is not identified with the spiritual self, because the spiritual self is the knower. The mind is not the knower. Mind is an object of knowledge. Just as you perceive an external object, similarly, you can observe your own mind. Since it is an object of knowledge, an object of cognition, mind cannot be the knower. You are essentially the knower. Now, what he's saying is, that there's a you or an I who is the knower of, the perceiver of and aware of the mind and if that's true then the possibility of us controlling mind is very real the possibility of it making it our friend is also very real and the possibility of coming out from and to cease working at its behest is very real Now, if I don't know that, if I don't know that I am distinct from and separate from the mind, if I don't know that or if I forget it, I end up becoming the mind. I forget myself and I actually become the mind and my life then depends on the state of mind. So I see everything through and related to the state of my mind so for example if the mind is full of worry I say things like I'm very worried if my mind is full of depressing thoughts I say I'm very depressed if my mind is clear and bright I say I'm a happy little piggy today (laughs) and I'm all the time identifying myself with the state of the mind and it's like and as absurd as identifying myself with the state of my car. It's like saying I'm me car today <laughs> and I feel lovely and clean. It's it's like that. Now in Eastern philosophy there are three primary states of the mind and they're called sattva, rajas and tamas. And sattva would be loosely translated as clarity. Rajas would be activity and busyness. And tamas is dullness. And depending on which state is predominant in the mind, if I am forgetful of myself, that's how I experience my life. It'll be clear, busy and dull. Sometimes it'll be clear, sometimes busy and sometimes dull. So if I'm looking at a painting, for example... And the mind is clear, I will be full of awe and wonder. If I'm looking at the same painting and the mind is rajasika or busy, I'll want to possess it. And if I'm looking at the same painting and the mind is dull and tamasaka, I may be cynical or critical or disinterested. So it's like the state of mind is determining the experience. It's the same painting and the same self. The state of mind in between is determining the experience. Now, when I speak about these states, you recognize them. You can sit there and acknowledge and be familiar with the three states. That also highlights and tells you that there's you, that observes and knows about the mind and that's the true relationship the false relationship is where you forget yourself and become the mind moving on the question arises how does the instrument work if mind is an instrument and I am the, the owner of it it would be useful to know how it works And simply there are two main parts I'd like to highlight. If you consider a mind as a circle and divide it in half and the top half is what we refer to as intellect and the job of the intellect is to decide. That's its main function. It discriminates between good and bad, right and wrong, level from crooked, Black from white. It decides and makes decisions. It discriminates. It's the seat of memory. It's the point of creation or inspiration. And reason also operates from there. So that's its function. If you look to the lower half of the circle, you have what's called the ordinary thinking mind. Now, its function is simply to receive the impressions through the senses. You're using it at the moment. So all the impressions here are being received through the senses, and the thinking mind's job, its main job, is simply to interpret. So you have these two beautifully fine-tuned instruments, if you like, or aspects of one instrument. And if you try to use the active mind to make decisions it will become very agitated and very confused. It can't make decisions. It doesn't know how. The intellect aspect of mind is pre-programmed. When you arrive it's already programmed. The computer chip is in place. It knows how to decide. It knows how to reason it is the point of creation, inspiration and it knows how to discriminate all by itself and all of the thinking and the confusion and the worry and the anxiety that we stir up in the active part of mind actually prevents it from working properly we actually stop it working beautifully now for the piece of equipment to work beautifully it needs a little oil like an engine and the oil for the mind is stillness so if as an individual I'm interested in taking control of the mind and allowing the mind to work as my friend the ingredient that needs to be introduced is stillness creating activity in there actually is like taking all the oil out of the engine and expecting it to work nicely. Now earlier in that piece by Ramana Maharshi he said the main purpose of the mind was this inward journey, inward seeking. All the activity and commotion that we create in mind is because we allow the mind to go outward-seeking. So we allow it to go out and become active and become busy and become full of thinkings. And what moves the mind out, what creates all this activity, is desire. So if you wanted to home in and find out where exactly is the difficulty desire is what spins the mind outwards a further piece by Ramana Maharshi about this I'll just read for you now the state of no desire is freedom there is no duality in sleep and also no desire whereas there is duality in the waking state and desire is also there. Because of duality, a desire arises for the acquisition of the object. This is the outgoing mind, which is the basis of duality and of desire. If one knows that bliss is none other than the self, the mind becomes inward turned. If the self is gained, all desires are fulfilled. So, central to all the activity and all this outward moving mind and all the seeking, outward seeking, is desire. And I'm going to just give you a very common, at least I hope it's a common illustration. I just want to describe the outward moving mind when you meet somebody. It could be a stranger or it could be someone you know well. The first thing that happens is you have ideas about the person you're meeting. That's the first little piece of activity that starts. And closely behind that income come ideas about yourself. So you're standing there in front of someone, you're being introduced to them, you have a little selection of ideas about yourself and ideas about them. And the mind can be quite busy. When that happens, the attention splits. It's split between what you're thinking about the person you're meeting and what you're thinking about yourself. If that's the case, you start to react to the person. So you start to say things and they may not even be coherent. They may have a sort of a nervous flavour to them. And it results in you feeling very uncomfortable. So you could be simply standing there, meeting a stranger and be really, really uncomfortable and you know the responses are artificial you're talking about things you may not even want to talk about or you're saying things you may not want to say, they're just artificial and the experience on such occasions would be one of division, wouldn't be very harmonious and if there is a need in the situation it wouldn't be met, it would be obscured by all this activity in the mind now the same event with the mind moving inwards and still you would have no ideas about yourself firstly you would have no judgment or ideas about the person you're meeting so the attention would be singular the heart would be open your responses would be absolutely natural perfectly natural and very appropriate to the particular situation that you're in. You would experience great sense of ease, be at ease in yourself. And whatever the needs are, they will be met fully. Now those two pictures are light years away from each other. One is very active, nervous, artificial, false, uncomfortable response. The other is full of ease, full of rest, appropriateness, and naturalness. And the only difference is which direction the mind moves. It moves inward, you get the goodies. It moves outward, you get all the agitation. And desire is what moves it out. Like a simple desire to impress somebody could create all that scenario that I've described. So desire is what draws the mind out. Walking down Grafton Street in around Christmas time, I thought my wife was beside me, and frequently I had to look around and realise she was gone. And desire not only dragged her eyes to the shops, but it literally dragged her body into various shops. I sort of found myself doing this frequently. I happened to go back and find out which shop did she go into. So desire draws us out and draws the mind outwards. Its nature is insatiable. The moment one desire is satisfied, a new one arises. That's its nature. That's how it works. And we tend to fool ourselves. We think, when the desire is satisfied, I'll be blissfully happy. But the space is tiny. We satisfy one and then we move on. The wise describe desire as the main enemy and principally because they see the desire and the consequences at the same time. We see them separately. So, for example, we think it's possible to spend money at Christmas time and we're disgusted when the bill comes in telling us how much it is. We think they should be different. We think we can overeat and stay slim. We're disgusted that the weight has gone on. You would never hear a human being going into a pub saying, make me feel a little bit sick until 3 o'clock tomorrow.
1: <laughs>
0: or, or, here's 20 pounds, make me feel a little woozy just tomorrow morning. Now, we actually don't see them together. We see them t- totally separately. And we think we can behave in one way to satisfy desires and avoid the consequences. The wise see the two of them together. They don't have any struggle with it. They actually see the two side by side. Now, desire also sends our mind back into past or off into the future. If you just consider nursing an offence, someone had said something to you, they might have even looked at you the wrong way, and you start to spin a little cocoon and you nurse an offence and this can go on for weeks how dare they speak to me like that and me after all I've done and you can spend day in day out nursing one singular little offence like that. If I were to cause offence here now tonight and you met me in Grafton Street in six weeks you could find it's the very first thing that comes to your mind. And if you were with somebody, you'd say, there's that guy. There he is. Wait till I I tell you what happened. Six weeks to the day. You won't believe what he said. Wait till I tell you. And it would be quite substantial in your mind. So, nursing offences, bemoaning our situation, speculating about the future, trying to secure the future. These are all flavours of mind either moving back into the past or moving off into the, the future. And desire is central to it. Aversion, which is desire's first cousin, this is a desire not to do things, produces endless agitations in the mind. Procrastination, idle thinking. Just think of all the agitation in the mind that's connected with not doing things. You have a phone call to make, it's Monday morning at nine o'clock. You put it off till Friday and drive yourself insane for the week. And that's only one. If you have six or seven of those, the mind is like one of these little glass, glass balls full of snow. It's just full of agitation. And the mind that's agitated cannot useful condition, it can't be your friend that's for certain, if it's agitated and when you eventually attend to the task you see it took 5 minutes and you experience great relief, then you go out next week and you repeat the thing exactly the same again now how to cultivate mind as friend so just so we're clear what we're saying is the difficulty is one of direction mind moving outwards is moving into activity moving inwards it's moving towards stillness moving inwards it works beautifully moving outwards it becomes agitated and doesn't work effectively or beautifully the difference between the two it pivots on desire So to cultivate mind as friend, the very first thing one would have to do is to appreciate the need. Without appreciation of need, nothing would change. You'd have to see that something needs to be done here. The second thing is to adopt an attitude of letting go. Whereas the tendency is to have an attitude of acquisition and pick up and hold on to everything. Like the nursing of the offence is one such way we do that. But there's a tendency to want to pick up and acquire and hold on. And all that does is clutter. Mind works brilliantly when it's free. So an attitude of letting go is a useful thing to develop. I have a son who started school recently. He's just five at the moment, but he was, he was four and a half when he said, what I'm going to tell you now. And the teacher was very upset with him. This is just before Christmas. She was telling me this. Apparently he did something terrible in class, and the teacher was really upset. And after chastising him and reprimanding him, about three hours later, she had another go at him. She said, I can't believe that you did this thing. He's four and a half. He looked around and said, Would you just let it go? (laughs) Now, in case you think he's some sort of special guru, I think he may have heard his mother talking. (laughs) Or it might have been his father. Just let it go It is a beautifully simple instruction. And there's none of us in the room who does not have the capacity to do that. Everybody has the capacity to just let it go. And mind works beautifully if we would learn to just let it go. Whatever it is that's there. and it's a very good exchange. If you let go this, the thinkings in the mind the move is automatically inwards and when the mind moves inwards it moves closer to this stillness it moves closer to the source of true knowledge it moves from a, a situation of partiality to a complete view or the possibility of a complete view when mind is moving outwards and active it's like you're severing the possibility of connecting with those aspects like if I'm thinking, thinking, thinking I'm actually cutting off the possibility of using this beautiful instrument properly Now some aids to help us, the the simplest way of quieting the mind, the simplest and most effective way is to pay attention. Like if while I'm speaking now you are inattentive and thinking of something from today or something from later on, your mind will not be nice and quiet. But if while I'm speaking you're just listening to the words coming out of my mouth your mind will be quiet and you will experience that and the difference is the attention is single pointed or it's divided single pointed the mind is quiet divided the mind is very very busy and it can get to extremes if, if you're familiar with trying to do a job and worry about the deadline at the same time you know what that's like, it's quite extreme it can be extreme so single pointedness of attention is the simplest, easiest way to bring the mind to rest and allow it to be quiet when the attention is single pointed it produces a sense of non-attachment and it's the non-attachment that gives you this opportunity to let go of desires or if you reverse that the attachment as a result of desire causes all the agitation. So that's the first aid to help us and again these aren't complex these are very simple aids to to doing this. Now to help with concentration One needs to be clear about the aim of one's life. Now, this may sound like an unusual aid to helping concentration, but if you consider a meeting you're attending or any task you're engaged in that you don't know the aim of or you're not clear about the aim, you will find that that meeting and all the decision-making will go all over the place. There's nothing that's concentrating it. So it's very, very difficult to, to stay steady. Now, if the life, the whole life, is not dedicated to something, that's what that would be like. It will be all over the place. Instead of concentrated and focused on something. So a life needs to be dedicated. If mind is full of desires, angers, loves and hates, That's the way it stays. It'll stay forever tossing this way and that way. The moment it is dedicated to something useful, a lot of that would fall away and the mind would actually become more focused, more concentrated. Now, a dedicated life, a good dedicated life, Well, if it was a sincerely dedicated life, it would have to be dedicated to something bigger than me. A life dedicated to me isn't exactly the all-time great. So the first quality would be self-interest is no interest. Where devotion to God, the truth, and the service of all living beings are the guiding principles. So it would encourage you to think of and dedicate life to something bigger than just me and my particular concerns. So a good question to ask, if you want to ask a good question, you can ask it quietly later on in your beside the fire. What is the aim of my life? What is the vision for my life? What is it dedicated to? The next aid would be good company. And every time you think of good company, you always think of people. But good company is people, it's literature, it's music. And good company is company that puts you on your best behaviour. Company that keeps extracting the best from you. Company that makes your speech truthful. Company that raises up your behavior to the highest possible standard allows the thoughts in mind to be purer allows the attitudes in the heart to be true and this company that does that it actually lifts you up and this company that doesn't it fills your mind full of ideas and your heart full of desires and it can even produce behavior that's not very appropriate And reading, I mean to read good literature, can be very uplifting. The lives of the saints, scripture can be really extremely useful for nourishing the mind and lifting it up. And if I'm allowed a little commercial break, The Life of St. Francis by Adrian House is a brilliant read in this regard. Because he was a rascal, it's a very encouraging book. And it's a recent publication. I, I was very encouraged by the fact that he was a rascal. Because when you read it, you see there's hope for everybody. In fact, he was naughtier than I've ever been, so, that's, so it was quite good. The next thing is just to consider what we feed the mind on. i just read this extract. It's from the same piece as we read earlier. You cannot have a sound mind simply by paying attention to the mind when you have mental trouble. Just as you cannot expect to have a good physical health if you take care of the body only when you have physical ailments. If you want to have a good body, a healthy, strong body, you must take care of it at all times. Similarly, for the development of the mind, you have to feed the mind with rich food, nourish it regularly, strengthen it, Enrich it just as if you feed a cow well, you can get abundance of milk. Similarly, if you feed this mind well, then only can you get rich food from it. That is, you can have peace, you can have wisdom, you can have strength and joy. It's a curious thing that we would all love peace of mind. If you ask any person what would they like most of all, After a little discussion, you'll find peace of mind will race up at the very top, usually in the top slot or the second slot. And yet we seem to have tremendous capacity for creating agitation and commotion. So food for the mind is principle. The mind needs to be referred to and fed on principle. And a simple way of doing that is you can ask yourself in any situation, what is the principle operating here now? I was recently on holidays abroad where I got three parking tickets. I don't have to tell you the kind of ideas that came into the mind. (laughs) And if principle were not remembered, one would arrive home with the unpaid parking tickets in their bag because principle wouldn't operate what would operate is what's in it for me what can i get away with and if principle isn't operating in the mind that's what is working what's in it for me what can i get away with what can i get out of this and we would justify it so i don't live there I don't, I don't have to contribute to the roads there. I pay my taxes at home. You could justify it in all sorts of different ways. But the moment you introduce principle, it wipes out all of that justification and you just pay the fines. The th- last piece is rest for the mind the mind needs rest and there is a useful tip here sleep is rest for the body sleep does not necessarily bring rest to the mind and sometimes you can go to sleep at night and you wake up and it's as if a bus is running up and down your bed all over you all night mind wise so sleep is to body as stillness is to mind so stillness nourishes and refreshes and revives the mind, not sleep. So sitting quietly for a couple of moments and quietening the mind is resting the mind, nourishing it and uplifting it, and preparing it for future work. And A good practice would be, whenever you meet with situations and events, is to actually try and practice becoming still first. Like becoming inwardly still before you go off into the decision-making and activating mind when you're meeting particular situations. In conclusion, if I could encourage you that right now you can acknowledge that we can observe the body just as we sit here you can observe and be aware of the physical body that we can observe and be aware of the moving mind and we can also observe and be fully aware of all the emotional movements in the heart to free yourself from identification with any of the states that you might encounter, there is a simple and reasonable formula. And that is simply to remember that I cannot be that which I observe. I cannot be that which I observe. If I cannot be that which I observe, I am unaffected by it. So I do not have to live under the tyranny of the mind. It's it's actually a piece of equipment. It's a toolbox. It's a toolbox which I could use. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Well, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. So, it's really over to you now to raise any aspect of this talk, any questions you'd like to ask, and we'll see what happens.
2: I'd just like to ask, am I correct in assuming that the I who you spoke about, who's viewing mind, is my soul, really, or my real self, which I think would be my soul. I'm not too sure, but I'd just like to... If you could elaborate a little on it.
0: Yeah. Well, yes, you've you've done it very nicely, actually. I could just say yes. It is my real self. My real self is beyond body, mind and nature. And is the ultimate observer and witness of everything. So that is what that is. It's my true self. It just depends on what you mean by soul. In Platonic teaching Plato divides everything into simply two. He says there's the physical body and everything else then is soul. So Plato's description of soul includes mind and heart and the nature. But I think if you refer to the Upanishads you would find a description of the self would be beyond mind, heart and nature.
2: If I can view my mind, my soul or my uh, self. self must be beyond it. Absolutely,
0: yes. And if there's one point that we're seeking
2: to highlight in this talk <clears throat>
0: is that particular point, that I am the knower of and perceiver of the mind, therefore not under its authority. Mm-hmm therefore the mind is under my authority.
2: I think that's logical.
1: Yeah.
2: Point of view. There is one question which I asked last night and it's a short one. If a person, not I or you or anyone, if a person was damned for all eternity to damnation that yeah. means that their real self would be there and therefore that's a part of God. And how can God suffer by damnation? Uh, it doesn't seem logical. <coughs>
0: No, God definitely doesn't suffer from damnation. But whatever is individual in us is experiencing the suffering. Like, if I asked any of us in this room now, do we experience suffering now while on this earth currently? The answer would plainly be yes. But that doesn't take away from the fact that your true self is not suffering anything. But that character that I think I am, with this particular body and mind and heart definitely suffers
2: yes but you, you will get expressions in the in the scriptures uh, to be condemned body and soul into hell for all eternity, yeah, uh, then I take the soul there is the real self, and it's a bit of god it's, it's, it's not a good description, a bit of God, it's the essence of God, so that if a person will suffer anything by being damned yeah. Uh, uh, there was a part of God in that. In yes,
0: that. soul in that context is referring to the individual aspect. You see, sometimes you read some scripture and words out of context or in context mean slightly different things. So soul suffering damnation is not talking about God suffering damnation, it's talking about something individual. That's
2: great. Thank you very much, that's, that's
0: great. All right. What else?
2: In order
3: to be the observer, it sounds like, first of all, to a point you have to step outside yourself, to detach. Would you actually, would it be right to think that you think of your body as a third person, and your body and mind, like the mind is thinking a certain way, the mind is majestic at this point in time, or the leg is sore, and so disassociate from it?
0: Well, you, you can just simply become aware of the mind and its activity, uh, the body and its um, ailments or discomfort. I mean, I'm not sure if stepping outside yourself is, is a useful concept. You, you can't step outside yourself.
3: <coughs> or relate yourself then, as if it were not yourself, <coughs> but the body and mind, as the third person.
0: I'm just not sure how useful that is, because there is one, there's only one self. You are yourself, and it's uh, manifest through that particular form there, that body.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, to know that I am not the body, but embodied, is very useful. I am not the mind, and I am not the heart.
3: So to be aware and just observe is sufficient?
0: It, just observe, yeah. And it's like, it's, it's in the observation that you come to know what you're not, and you also come to know what you are.
3: Is it a lifelong journey? I would think so. Mm.
0: Yeah?
4: There's no shortcuts. I wouldn't think so. Unfortunately. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> if you find any shortcuts, perhaps you could give us a call.
4: certainly. <laughs> Thank you.
2: Thank you.
5: Is the self, when you become into yourself, and is the spirit when you quieten, is that the, the real self?
0: When you say the spirit, when you uh, quiet.: When
5: you quieten yourself and make yourself very still. Yeah. And you become in touch with your inner self, your spirit. Yeah. Is that the true self?
0: From what you're saying, it's certainly heading in that direction. Yes. You can stop short. We can settle for a very peaceful mind, for instance, sometimes yes and there's further to go
5: yes but it's within there that you find the growth
0: yes stillness is a brilliant signpost yes stillness is yourself yourself is stillness
5: so you become in touch with your spirit or does the spirit mean anything
0: when you say does the spirit mean anything? Um,
5: when you become still Yes. And uh, you are in touch with an inner self. Yeah. A deep inner self. Is that the true self? And the body is the outer clothing? Yes, outer absolutely. The
0: yes, the body is like an overcoat.
5: The overcoat. Yes. But that's where you become in touch with the real you, with the emotions and the. Well, not necessarily the emotions because emotions would be outside.
0: The, yeah. Your true self is beyond the body? Beyond, beyond mind and, and beyond, beyond the emotional areas. That's right.
5: Yes. Okay.
0: And the more the more one becomes united with one's true self, the more one. As it sounds a bit odd, but the more one becomes one's true self, um, the more your body, mind, and heart would reflect that. Yes. So the motions would become purer. The mind would
2: become purer. Yes.
5: But sometimes you would feel that getting in touch with the true self and coming into the spirit, it can be almost selfish at times. Uh, when I say selfish, that you can, you move back. I mean, when there's a lot of hassle going on around you, you can you can step back at times, or you try to step back and yeah. slow yourself down and say, uh-oh, oh, you know. And, and how do you people, equate
0: that with selfishness?
5: Well, uh, you know, to the outer world, they say, well, okay, you should be in there, you know, moving, worrying, being anxious, whatever. And um, sometimes you almost feel, is, is that the way I should be, when you're trying to work in the opposite way?
0: That's a common difficulty, isn't it? You, yes. You're kind of acting and behaving in a way that you think you should, or you think yes. you're expected to behave and act, isn't it? Yes,
5: uh, exactly. But as I practice the stillness, and to be at, more at home with myself, yeah. I would say, maybe even in a group or a crowd or whatever, I say, am I becoming selfish here?
0: Well, what's your experience? When I you... find
5: it very fulfilling for myself when I do this. And then I can relate better to other people afterwards or I can deal with situations much better.
0: So is the experience selfish?
5: No, no. I don't think so. No,
0: no it's not, it doesn't sound selfish. No. So that's what you would trust. You would trust the experience. I wouldn't give one single moment's thought to what someone else thinks. Yes. You would actually trust the experience. If by letting the mind fall still, you become less entangled in one sense and then better able to relate to human beings in the other sense, then it mm. can't be bad. And it's a good direction, isn't
5: it? Well, for me it is. Yeah. The journey I feel I'm on at the moment, I find very fulfilling. Yeah. But I almost feel guilty then at times if I am not, how would I say, rushing and racing. I'm very comfortable and happy where <coughs> I am. Yes. But the world around me is so busy and so busy in mind as well as physically.
0: Well, that's the mind as enemy. That's the mind telling you you should be busy and you should be active and you should be doing something else.
5: I'm busy in my own way, if you know what I mean, but yeah. I'm not in a tangle about it. Yeah. All the time. Of course, I have my days.
0: Don't trust that stuff. Don't trust the mind telling you that you should be busy. Don't trust the mind telling you you should be... So that's the enemy. ...playing to the gallery. Yes, that's the enemy. That's mind as enemy. Very much so.
5: Yes. Stay busy. Yes.
0: You should be doing something else. Yes, I
5: have that drive, yes.
0: You should be worrying.
5: No, I come to a stage, I do what I can about the situation. And then I let go and leave it to my higher power. Excellent. It sounds good. Mm. Okay. Thank you
0: thank very you. much. Ah. To follow on from the, the last comment there, the mind is enemy, a lot of people suffer from depression.
1: Yeah.
0: And modern science treats with drugs and medication. Have
4: you any comments or observations to make on how maybe one could use the exercises you gave here to help stop the mind being such an enemy
0: as depression? Yeah. Depression can reach such a level that the only, or the initial help, has to be medical. So you you can't write off medical assistance and say, well, everybody should be able to philosophize their way out of depression. That wouldn't be very fair. But, you see, whatever you give attention to grows. Whatever you attend to grows. So if, for example, you have a tendency to think negatively about something, it could be about an issue or it could be just generally, and you continuously attend to it, you continuously go back to it again and again and again, it will grow and it will become all-consuming. And that's what happens when somebody becomes very, very depressed now I think we all experience that in some way we have all experienced it in some degree where we've got ourselves into a bit of a state and something has to happen either externally or internally to snap yourself out of it but it is attention being given to a particular idea, a negative idea now it might be that it's deep in the the nature the tendency to give those things their attention, and you might need extra help. Meditation would be an extremely useful tool for someone who would like to clean up that area. It's very hard to address the causes of, that make us behave like we do, because they're very subtle, they're difficult to see. The only tool I can recommend that addresses the causes of why I behave like I behave is meditation. I don't know any other.
4: Thank you. Okay. You might maybe help me with maybe two practical examples of of day-to-day living, if I could just ask two questions. One is that we lead very busy lives from day-to-day, week-to-week. There are some times when we are perhaps busier than others and we have maybe a heavy workload at particular points. And someone comes along and says... I'd like you to do a bit more. Now here's a bit of extra work. I'm very busy myself. I'm just wondering, do we accept that with kind of love and, and goodness for this other individual and say, this guy is very busy. I'm for my, for my fellow man. I'm going to help this person out. Secondly, just in relation to parenting and our, and our kids, I would observe that we would have learned a lot of our fears and anxieties from our parents. And now we start seeing it in our kids as well. Mm. And I'm just wondering, can we break that cycle? or do our kids have to learn the truth within themselves at some point in time and perhaps how can we help them to break that cycle?
0: Well the answer to the first question is yes love and service.
4: We take on the extra work.
0: To go out of here tonight with an instruction I must take on all extra work wouldn't be very useful but you'd have to look at your responses (coughs) to people. Your response can be one of looking after me which is often the response, or can be actually, I have the capacity and I have the time to actually look after somebody else. And it really is as simple as that. Am I attending to and serving this, or am I being helpful and serving the greater good?
4: Albeit that you might perhaps feel used, that you feel that the more you do, perhaps, the more you might be given.
0: Well, if I could just say that, True service is always from the strong to the weak. Always. You don't require any training to provide Mickey Mouse service or to abstain from being of service. But to actually provide service requires a certain strength of character and certain intelligence, actually, to be of really true service. In other words, it requires a big man with a big heart to be able to say yes. Yes leave that with me, I look after that. And not feel used, and not feel abused.
4: And in relation to the kids? Well, you could definitely help them, couldn't you? Surely. But it is remarkable that we do observe our fears and insecurities, to be able to turn to our parents, into our kids. Yes,
0: yeah, so you better stop the cycle. So it does, it behove you and I to stop that. That's quite right, but you can actually stop it by addressing them here. So, for example, if you see a particular tendency of behaviour here, or a tendency of thinking, or attitudinally here, you address it. That alone will help your children. If you see the tendencies in your children, then you're in a position to, you know, correct them, direct them. You know, ever open your mouth and you hear your father coming out, or your mother? Have you experienced that? And you can't believe it. There it is in all its glory and it's come out. Like I swore as a child I would never say when I was your age. I would never say it. I've hurt myself. When I was your age. So the first point of address is yourself. Because the children pick up their father and their mother. They pick up the subtle aspects of both. So if dad has a tendency to be a worrier the chances of the child picking that up are very high. Now, he has other factors involved, or she, so it doesn't always work like that. So you can stop a child and say, don't speak like that, it's not true. Or, don't say that about yourself, it's not true. You can nail them quite early. If you want to. Is that all right?
6: How can we be sure of when our mind is our enemy or our friend?
0: What's the effect of being in the company of a good friend? Being
7: comfortable?
0: Yeah. When you're with a really good friend, what are the qualities that you experience?
6: Uh, Comfort, pleasure, relaxation.
0: Yeah, so there would be ease and happiness and sense of clarity. It's exactly the same with the mind.
6: Supposing you said that the mind is being true when it says be calm and quiet and following on from a
0: question prior to that
6: could people then classify you as being lazy you're opting out when you should be active.
0: I wouldn't use other people's judgment of me at all in this inquiry. What people think is totally relevant like every single person in this room has a little set of ideas about everybody else in the room. And you've all got ideas about me. And they're all untrue. They're all just ideas. So if we could abandon the notion that it's very, very important as to what other people think, it's not important, it's not a measure of anything. It's not a measure of reasonable behavior, it's not a measure of how to live my life, it's a measure of nothing. It's just what people think, that's all it is. Do you know what it's like to be engaged in something and somewhere deep inside yourself you know you shouldn't be doing this? Do you know what that's like? Do you? Yeah. <laughs> that will be mind operating as enemy or afterwards you've said something and you regret it later on, you, you wish you hadn't said that. Somehow you've said something and you wish you hadn't. That's mind behaving like enemy. It's like it's directing you against your will. Do you recognize that?
1: Yeah.
0: Well, that's enemy. It's disharmonious. It's divisive. I suppose
6: what I was thinking of, is, suppose the person <coughs> whose opinion you're, you're, you're looking at or examining has a big influence on your life, like your boss. Yes. And you decided to <coughs> quiet moment and he reckons you should be more active than you are, then his opinion, I think, is of some consequence. You can't just push it aside.
0: Well, see, if I just say, a still mind, or resting the mind, wouldn't produce laziness. If you're being lazy, you're being lazy. Yeah. I mean, that could be a problem, I don't know. <laughs> see, a still mind would produce a much more effective human being, much more intelligent. You'd be promoted. one indication that the mind is your friend is you're moving up the corporate ladder faster I
6: think it's not a definition really, isn't it? we're talking about quiet mind or still mind or inactive mind
0: well, stillness of mind would produce um, a more effective use of mind and hopefully more effective actions and behaviour Sitting bone idle will produce a sore backside.
3: (laughs) This is sort of like a follow-on from that other question. I'm wondering, is there any such thing really as bad company? Or is it only all my perception? If I'm in the company of somebody like a good friend, as you said, I feel very much at ease. And if I'm in the company of somebody with whom I disagree... I'm not at ease, or if they say things that I don't agree with, I'm not at ease, or they might say things I might find insulting. Is not that just my discursive mind at that particular time? Or why does it happen with that person all the time if it is just my discursive mind? I find that it's very easy to let the intellect take over when you're with a person that you get on with, but when you're with people that you find it difficult to get on with, the discursive mind always seems to kick in. Um, That's one question. And the other question was, given now that we're led to believe that every cell in our body has intelligence, our um, heart and our solar plexus and our spine and our big toe and everything else has a divine intelligence, Mm. every cell is intelligent, which would include our brain, is not the sum total then of all that intelligence, what we call our mind? Y- or could, is our mind separate from that again?
0: No, you could, you could, you call, could call that, that your mind. Yes, absolutely.
3: So your brain, your brain is an aspect of your mind. Yeah, brain really. is really
0: a physical organ. And it obviously has a very close association with mind because it allows the mind to be expressed through this body. And the brain is the mechanics of that expression. But mind is far greater than just brain.
3: It's the whole production of the body.
0: And more than that, yes.
3: And more than that. Yeah. That's where I get lost. And then to go outside of that again to the self is a different thing again. Yeah. I understand the self, and I understand the sum total of the body being intelligent. And to me, I thought that sort of all those workings produces what we call the mind. I can't quite understand where the mind fits in.
0: Well, just hear the mind as the subtle aspect, firstly. It's not just located in my head, and it's not just limited to this physical shape here. It's broader, it's vast, it's everywhere. Emerson describes mind as being singular and universal, and we each have access to it. It's we that claim we have a little private mind. But it's like there's a vast universal mind, and we isolate a little piece of it and say, that's mine. And we people that with all sorts of thoughts that we're familiar with, and we call that my mind. But really what we're doing is we're putting a little fence around a small part of mind and saying, that's mine.
3: So you're saying mind is universal?
0: Yes.
1: Right.
0: And singular. And you have proof of this. You know, a mother can wake up at night and just jump out of bed and go and attend to a child. Something has informed her that the child needs attention.
3: So in, people would call that the divine intelligence, would they?
0: Well, it's happening through the mind. It's happening in mind, as it were.
3: Yeah. What was your
0: first question? I've Um, forgotten what the first question was.
3: You said that we should seek good company to uplift the mind and raise the mind and focus the mind and clear our minds and so on. And I'm just a bit mixed up as to what exactly good company is, apart from music and books and all that, but with regard to people.
0: People, yes. Well, company that affects your behavior is what you have to watch. If you're strong enough to stay truthful, pure in mind and pure in heart in any company, then you don't have to worry about this.
3: Well, if you're not.
0: (laughs) Exactly. So then you would not seek out company that would make your speech untrue, your mind impure or your heart impure. You wouldn't seek it out. So you wouldn't go looking for company that's going to do that. If you know that in particular company that you behave poorly, let's call it as innocently as that, Mm. you wouldn't seek it out. So if you're going to seek company, you'd seek company that actually raises
1: up. Mm,
3: Yeah, but you wouldn't necessarily define that company as bad company. It would be the way I behave in that company because it causes this behaviour in me. The other company is not necessarily bad. It's just my dealing with it.
0: Well, in some cases it could be just your dealing. But do you get a sense that, for instance, a realized man or a saint doesn't have to worry about what company he's in? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. So what's the difference? Why do you and I have to be concerned with what company we're in?
3: Because some types of companies make me... Degrade. angry, or whatever, yeah.
0: Yeah. And that's why we've got to be careful.
3: Yeah.
0: And in some situations we are very strong and steady and stable, and in others we have to be very careful what company we're in. Like the certain company you're in and your language will deteriorate dramatically. Do you recognize that? there's other company that you're in and that won't happen.
3: That's a fault within myself though, isn't it? it it's is.
0: Well, it's a fault within yourself, but the company is what's, okay. as if, if you like, what's bringing it out is the company.
3: Yeah.
0: And until you're strong enough to not be affected by the company, then you have to be careful. All
3: well, right, fair enough. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> Thank you. During the, the talk you mentioned to dedicate one's life to mm. something other than yourself, So in other words, a purpose in life, would that be true? Now, for myself, and I've asked the lady beside me as well about purpose in life, for most people, you know, it's just getting through the day, career, all that sort of thing. And purpose in life, to me, seems like a very lofty ideal. And I've no idea what it really is. And if people do have a purpose in life, I'd love to know what it is, you know, apart from the day-to-day stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, you could actually, firstly, ask the question. That's the first step with this. You could simply start asking the question, what is this life dedicated to? In other words, don't try and pin it all down this evening. Just start by asking the question. And asking the question starts to reveal what exactly this life is dedicated to. You start to see that it's maybe self-centered and so forth and so on, Mm -hmm. and totally absorbed in what you might call ordinary day-to-day activities. Now, in whatever circumstances you are in, dedicating the life to something useful will change all those circumstances, the exact same circumstances. In other words, a lady could decide if she's in the home with her family to dedicate every moment of every day for the benefit of the family. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Now, that would be a shift from thinking about herself all day to something bigger and that would be a very useful start. But if you think of it, someone like a Gandhi Mm -hmm. simply had a vision for his country. That's all he had. The only difference between a Gandhi and some other Indian is the size of the vision and it was sizable, it was in his heart, it was true, he felt it and believed it, and obviously he had his sights on it, and he didn't waver, but really the only difference is the size of the vision. Today can be centered around me, which is the smallest possible vision that you can have, mm-hmm you could move out to the next level, which would be family... ...community... ...nation, and so on, universe. Now, it is possible for anyone in this room to adjust the attitude, to actually change the attitude. And you could get up tomorrow morning and actually have an attitude and practice having an attitude that moves you out from that small mm-hmm. circle Then, mm-hmm. Like the line in the, in the talk was, dedicating one's life to the service of all living beings. That would be quite challenging.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You could take that and have a look at that. Instead of being concerned with this, you are suddenly start to be concerned with that. Mm-hmm. So you can take the legs from under the habitual idea and tendency just to look after me.
1: Okay,
0: thank you. Does that make sense?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We'll check in with you the next time we're down in Limerick. <laughs>
7: <laughs> is it not all down to circumstances?
0: The when you say, is it, what do you mean?
7: We're guided by uh, what happens in our lives something we've no control over it. We might go home tonight and we might be all nice and peaceful and the wife says I don't love you anymore, yesterday evening i love Me. It's not all down to circumstances.
0: When you say isn't it all down to circumstances, what do you mean when you say it?
7: Everything that happens in our lives. Circumstances. Yes, we,
0: we have to meet mm-hmm. a great variety of circumstances, that's true. Yeah, yeah. And you don't know what you're going to meet. None of us know what we're, no, going, to no, we know what we're going to meet this evening. That's right. Mm-hmm. So when you say, isn't it, what's the well, it bit?
7: Well, how, how can we control our mind Like if we don't know what's, what we're going to meet?
0: Yes, but you can learn to control the mind, and you can learn to be in control of and in tune with yourself, regardless of the circumstances. Can you? Oh, Absolutely. You can, you can be in a position to meet the circumstances, meet the wife at the door with the baby as she's going. There is a common tendency to attribute blame to all the people involved, all the circumstances in my life and all the events, and they're the cause of all our difficulties. Do you recognize that tendency? Well, it's not true. It's plainly not true. They are, circumstances are circumstances, people are people and events are events.
7: No man is annoyed. Really. We're all surrounded by half a dozen people, maybe more, maybe really,
0: huh? But they're not the cause of our difficulty or misery. The cause of the misery is in here. Is it our attitude, those circumstances, that causes our
5: misery?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. And it's very easy to prove this. You see that you have three people meeting the same circumstances. One behaves like a saint, one behaves like a lunatic, and the other behaves somewhere in between. Now, if the event were the cause of the difficulty, everybody would behave in the same way. Some people are heroic in the face of tragedy, some people crumble if someone takes their pen in the office. <laughs> So circumstances aren't actually the cause of anything. The cause of all the difficulty is our, our inner response to the event, to the wife leaving with the baby under her arm. A man at peace with himself would just say, good night, dear. <laughs>
1: he'd,
0: look, he'd look to the positive side. He'd see no more bills.
7: Brian, you, you said there, when you come into
2: the world, you're
0: programmed perfectly. Can you give some example of what you mean by that? The intellect aspect of the mind is pre-programmed. It's perfect. Can you give any examples to support it? Is the circle perfect on the board? No. That's it. You know, you don't have to work it out, do you?
7: Was it, a, ch- a child wouldn't, would a child know that?
0: No, the child would have to be educated the intellect doesn't actually begin to operate perfectly in a child the adult actually should behave as the intellect for the child until the child is able to use his own but it does actually come in perfect the intellect is actually the decision-making capacity the fact that it has access to true knowledge the fact that it's the point of inspiration and creation, that is all in place. If I said to you, refine the aspect of your mind that makes decisions, you can't do it. You couldn't do it. The only thing you can do is you can stop interfering. You can stop interfering with the mind so that it can make decisions beautifully. But you can't actually adjust the quality of how it works. It just works beautifully by itself. So in other words, if your mind is really still, the intellect operates beautifully by itself. You don't have to do anything. You look like I've sold you a car with no wheels. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: no, I, I, I thought you meant that when you're born, that you're perfect.
0: Well, your true self is perfect. That's true. So we're talking about two different things, but... As a child,
7: you can't recognize it.
0: No, we're talking about two different things. We're talking about a functioning aspect of the mind in the first instance, and now you're talking about your true self, which is perfect. The Christian tradition tells you that you're made in the image and likeness of God. Now, which bit of you is made in the image and likeness of God?
2: Just your intellect?
0: No, nope. It's definitely not your body, is it? Uh, no. Right. So it's that self that is beyond body, mind and heart is in the image and likeness of God. And it is perfect. What do you call that? Yourself. But the scriptures say you're pure, perfect and complete. And the difficulty is in the thinking. We think we're otherwise. I think I am a body, I think I'm a limited entity, separate from everybody else, separate from God, separate from my fellow human being. But that's all in my thinking and I think myself into this mistake. But does everybody think themselves into that mistake? Everyone who's in it is thinking themselves into it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Where does it all go wrong? In the thinking. You see, if you think yourself separate, then you see everybody else as separate. If you think yourself limited, you see everybody else as limited. And if this thinking were to subside a little... <clears throat> You can get a sense quite quickly that that's not true you get a sense of the unity the underlying unity you see that the differences are only physical and that actual fact behind all the differences you and I are the same
7: there's no special school to go to for all that
0: The school of philosophy. Well, if you take the works of the great teachers, which is what the school does, and study them and go and actually look and inquire yourself, that's the only school, I'm afraid.
1: That's
0: fine. Thank you. Is that all right? Thank you. I think there's one last question, if there is one last question.
3: You just mentioned there that we think we're separate to everyone else, mm. and. In your opinion, where did all that begin when mankind began to think that he was, you know, different from everybody else? And where does, in your opinion, original sin fit into all this? Like, you know, the old scriptures would say that it caused our our intellect darkened and our will weakened and our passions inclined us to evil and we were subject to suffering and death. Does that sound familiar? Yes, it does. very.
0: So do you have to ask well, when it started?
3: Well... I do, yeah.
0: What about today?
3: If we're born perfectly programmed, yes. I can't figure out when, when and why it happens then.
0: Well, if you read different scriptures, they'll describe it differently. In the Christian tradition, it's Adam and Eve, is the description of the fall. In other traditions, it's described as somebody somewhere wanted something for themselves, is how it's described. But it's much easier to look at today. It's much easier to see Adam and Eve, the behaviour of Adam and Eve today, than it is to recall it as some historical point in time. Like the difficulty is happening today, it's happening now.
3: It is, but if we're all programmed so perfectly...
0: Could I just say that we're mixing up two things there. The intellect, as an aspect of the mind, doesn't need you to program it. It is perfectly programmed, it's Mm. a piece of equipment.
3: That's one thing. Yeah.
0: Your very nature is perfect and pure and complete. Yeah?
3: Yes, yeah.
0: Then you have the individual, if you like, the individual character or the embodiment sitting on that chair over there,
1: Mm.
0: which thinks herself separate from every other human being. Yeah. Yeah. If you like, that's the piece that requires the work.
3: But there'll never be a day when this bit here will be born not thinking otherwise, you know, thinking otherwise.
0: No, you can appreciate and realize your true self while in that form.
3: Yeah. But as human beings, we will always consider ourselves the way we consider ourselves, will we not? No, not if
1: you
0: realize the truth about yourself, you won't. You begin to see the falseness and the error.
3: But even though we see it, we still don't correct it eternally, you know, it's...
0: No, 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 I mean that you do actually see it. It's no longer a mistake, it's no longer error. You see that you and I are the same.
3: I do, but that doesn't stop me from having an argument with you tomorrow about something, you know? It still doesn't make for...
0: No, it's not an intellectual seeing now, it's an actual appreciation that we are all the one, single, same self. To reach that point, there would be no error, there would be no mistake. You could keep it very simple, that thinking is the error. How I think is the error.
3: Mm. It's just, I think, due to my brain, and therefore there is a problem.
0: But you're not subject to your thinking. You can change your thinking. You can go beyond it. You don't have to live under its domain. It's just thinking. It's like if you think you're separate, you are separate.
1: Does that feel
3: familiar? I, I understand the point you're making, yes, but um, we were led to believe that we will one day reach a point in our lives where all mankind will be united as one and that's what we're supposed to be striving for, isn't it? As Christians, to be like God and, yes, you know, you whatever, could, uh, whatever, And
0: You could experience that tonight.
3: And I possibly could for two seconds, but yeah, because no, of but, our brains...
0: No, hold on a second. Leave out the brain out of this. <laughs> you could experience and become one with that unity this evening. And know it's reality this evening.
3: Oh, it's transient. No,
0: it's not. It's permanent. Everything else is transient. The only thing that's permanent is that unifying, whole, pure Self. And it's always there.
3: The realization of it is... Realization
0: is what we're about, yeah. Mm. It's more like we leave that and think ourselves separate. Is that all right? And now I think we should finish. (laughs) Thank
1: you very much. Thanks.